Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, in Episode 12, we'll talk about State of Texas versus Robert Allen Frada. In March of 1992, after nine years of marriage, Farah Bakker Frada filed for divorce from her husband, Robert, a Missouri City public safety officer. Frada opposed the divorce and believed their marriage could be saved if Farah would allow him to see other women. Initially, Frada opposed divorce but not custody arrangements for the couple's three children, Bradley, Daniel, and Amber. He then changed his mind and sought custody to shift the burden of paying child support to Farah. In December 1993, Farah made allegations during a de- deposition taken in the divorce proceedings that angered Frada, and he started soliciting members at his gym to kill her. Frada also threatened to kill Farah himself. He eventually found a middleman, Joseph Prystash, who agreed to find someone to kill Frada, Farah, in exchange for a Jeep vehicle owned by Frada. Prystash found Howard Paul Guidry to act as the trigger man for $3,000. On November 9, 1994, three weeks before the scheduled divorce and custody trial, Guidry shot and killed Farah in the garage of her home. In the first two episodes, we'll talk about the case against... Frada, Farah's murder, and Frada's two trials, direct appeals, and his post-conviction claims. In part two, we'll talk about the cases against Price, Dash, and Guidry. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Great to be back here. Certainly, I told you earlier, it's kind of tried to turn off cold here. It's a little bit rainy. It's the perfect uh, it's the perfect weather to sit down and talk some uh, true crime, I guess. Yeah, perfect. It's it's hotter than the Dickens here. <laughs> I was about to say, I, I noticed the other day, and I was kind of laughing about it, 
We went to uh, we went into quarantine just about you know beginning of spring into winter, and we're gonna come out and it's gonna be a hundred degrees. People gonna be dying of heat stroke. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But uh, all right, well let's get on to um, Robert Frada, and since we're a two part episode, uh, or they're gonna be two parts. To this, uh, anything we don't get to tonight, we'll finish up next week. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So, um, the victim in this case is Sarah Famita Bakker Frada. Um, she was born in England. Her family lived there. Uh, and in fact, she lived there through her adulthood, went to school in England. Her parents, Lex and Betty, um, are Lex and Betty. And I I get the – I'm drawing the inference that Lex worked somehow in the oil and gas industry because uh, later he came to Houston to work, Texas, from England. And you only generally only see that with oil and gas. Right. I could be mistaken, however. Um, she also had a brother named Zane. There's not a lot of information out there about him. Um, again, she went to school in England. She began working for American Airlines as a ticket agent and worked with them, I guess, at Heathrow in London. And then she did become engaged to a gentleman in England, but when her parents moved to Texas, she decided to follow them. So the impression I get is that, you know, the the Bacher family were a very close one. And shortly after moving to Texas, she met Bob Frada, who was also working for American Airlines as a ticket agent. Okay. Um, so they did their work. Yeah, and and initially I think it's you can't believe anything. Okay, Frada is another one of those guys who I would not believe if his tongue came notarized. And there are various. <laughs> correct. Um, And there are various reasons for that, the primary one being he is a sociopathic personality. So people have no value in and of themselves. They only are valuable when they are valuable to him. Okay. So he's one of those people, once you lose your value, you... You're expendable, either literally or physically. Correct, figuratively or literally, exactly. Um, he was very, he's and he's very charming. He's nice looking, although I don't find him to be that lo- good looking. Uh, he was a bodybuilder. He's always had apparently some insecurity about his looks, and so he was always trying to make himself this perfect specimen. Uh, but he should have worked more on the inside rather than working on the outside, if you know what I'm saying. 
Right. And um, so they began dating. This is in their 1980s. And mm-hmm. eventually Sarah ended her engagement and she and, and Frada got married in 1983. Um, I think several people warned her, but when you're, when you, when you're in love, you're in love. And she could not see, you know, the problems. And Frada is also probably very good at, you know, putting forth this very attractive facade. And seeming very caring and very attentive and things of that nature. So they got married. They had three children, Bradley, Daniel, and Amber. Um, Bradley and Daniel were about a year apart, and Amber was born in 1990. The marriage started breaking down. Um, there was apparently a separation or, or initial plans of divorce, and Frada apparently decided that if uh, Farah had a nose job and a boob job, then that would save their marriage, and she did. She was a gorgeous woman, if you look at the pictures on the page. Um, I think her family is of Indian descent, And, I mean, so she was a very, very gorgeous woman. She did not need any enhancements whatsoever. And looking at pictures of her as a child and a young girl, she was pretty, gorgeous, you know, always. Mm-hmm. Um, after Amber was born, the marriage began breaking down. And I think at that point is when it became intolerable for Farah. One of the problems is that uh, Bobby's a bit of a freak. Bobby had sexually. Freak. Bobby. Bobby had. Bobby had sexually masochistic tendencies. Got you. He wanted Farah to hit him while he um, attended to his own needs. Yeah, got you. To yeah, to Ow. to try and put it relatively uh cleanly. Wow. That's special. And of course this is something that, you know, she doesn't think is normal or acceptable. And so she's hesitant to meet those those uh desires of his. He yeah. also has corpophilia where he likes to consume excrement and urine of the human variety. And suddenly I've lost my uh, appetite. And I apologize for that, but we got to go there. Because (laughs) Bobby's freak flag is going to become... (laughs) And you know, and the thing is, he's not proud of this. He he's tells not? a few people about it, but no, he's not. So no, he knows it's, you know, deviant. Huh? I wouldn't be proud of it either. Just saying. Well, it is. You know, but yeah, but you got to look at um, Let Your Freak Fact Flag fry, Fly, you know? 
True. So, but, um, yeah, so he, and, and that, I think Sarah reached a point where she, you know, was not going to do these things. And she was not going to be, I'm sure, belittled and criticized by Frada, who was domineering and controlling with women. Uh, she wasn't going to be told you're ugly, you're you're fat, you're stupid by him when, you know, he doesn't get his way, which is probably what, you know, uh, what happened. I would not be surprised if only she had been here to tell us. Um, so in March of 1992, they'd been married around nine years. She filed for divorce. She got... Uh, uh, let's see. The court let her have primary residence in the in the family home, mm-hmm. and she had custody of the children. She also was allowing a very uh, generous visitation to Frada. So I think even she recognized he's a good dad what goes on behind closed doors notwithstanding. And so she was, you know, allowing him, of course, the courts, you know, parents have to support their children. And so Frada was ordered to pay child support by the court. Mm-hmm. And right. it was after the child support um, that he decided, he started changing his mind about the the child support and the custody. Suddenly he wanted custody of the kids. Uh, he wanted Sarah to have to pay him child support. Okay. I think he also wanted access to a college fund as well as a uh, some kind of account that was created as a result of a personal injury settlement that involved the children. Mm, okay. So um, the custody dispute began. He also didn't want the divorce. He thought if Sarah would let them have an open relationship, then their marriage would be just fine. And again, you know, he doesn't see that, no, your marriage would not be fine. Your marriage would be as bad as it is now. So um, that was that was kind of the beginning. And on June 28, 1994, in kind of a prelude, a large man broke into the home, awoke Sarah in her bedroom, said, we need to talk about Bob, and then attacked her with a stun gun, which is used by police. Right. Um, and the Harris, uh, the the children were in the home, and this was one of the things that makes it so despicable, is the children were in the home at the time, and heard their mom, and then were trying to get in through the locked bedroom door to help their mother. 
So, you know, this and police could never prove anything, but they believe Bob Frada was behind this attack. Because why else would a, you know, an assailant say we need to talk about Bob? He thinks he's smart, but he's another one of those that really isn't. So, um, and this was, like I said, June 28, 1994. A few months later, Farah would be murdered. Um, it also occurred in December of 1993. Farah was ordered to be deposed in the divorce, and she gave deposition testimony, kind of airing some of the dirty laundry from her estranged husband, and this angered him at the deposition, and he told some people that it was untrue, which was why he was angry. So um, that was uh, that was pretty much that's kind of the end of of the uh, what we know about Farah, and unfortunately, like a lot of victims, there really isn't a lot of information out there. So now we get to Robert Allen Frada. He was born in New York State. He was raised there. Uh, apparently, I think it was on Long Island. He's in Westbury, New York, that he was born and raised. And I think that might be on Long Island, but I'm not sure. Um, which kind of also explains his attitude. Um, he had one sister and his parents. His father died suddenly when he was 17. They were apparently out hunting, and his father suffered a heart attack. And Bob had to carry them, carry him out of the woods and, and get help, and, and unfortunately his father passed. Uh, also, when he was 12, his mother was expecting a third child, and uh, he she lost the baby. It's not really clear what stage that was in, um, but he later has claimed that that had a, an effect on his life. Um, he also started working for Air, American Airlines at JFK Airport, and then he transferred to Hartford and Las Vegas, and then finally Houston. Uh, and that's where he met uh, Farah. I can imagine. I can imagine it would have a, a effect on your life. I'll say that much. Well, I could. You know, I could say losing his dad and the way he did. You know, did have an effect on his life. Although the the personality disorders that he has exhibited through psychological testing are kind of ones that the death of his dad would not do it. Mm-hmm. And it could be that he has always been one of those people that's slightly off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? True. So, um, but anyway, so he, at some point, perhaps after he and 
Farah get married, he decides to leave American Airlines. He tried to be hired by the Houston Police Department uh, Mm -hmm. to go to their police academy and become a police officer in Houston. But he was rejected by the Houston Police Department. What is with And I believe he tried twice. I don't know. Always. I don't know. And then he went on to become a public safety officer in Missouri City, Texas, which is in Waller County, which is in the Houston area. It's a, a kind of a, sub, a suburb of Harris and, and Houston metro area. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, married Farah in 1983. Uh, again, he thought that, you know, if they had an open marriage, everything would be fine, which is not true because that was not something that was acceptable to Farah. And it's, you know, a marriage is two people. It's not what makes the husband happy. And that's all that matters. And that's the way, you know, that's the way Bob Frada looked at it as, as long as I'm happy, everything's fine, which is part of that sociopathic personality. And then, you know, he initially didn't even want custody of the kids, had no mm-hmm. problem with Sarah having full custody. However, he decided, he also decided he wanted to control whether Farah could move out of humble Houston area. Uh, He wanted to limit her ability to move to a hundred mile radius. And, you know, with the job with American airlines, she, you know, she might get a, a, a core, an offer for a corporate position. And if their corporate headquarters are in Dallas or Chicago, you know, she would need need to be able to go to the corporate headquarters. So right. you don't want Bob Frada controlling your future. I, um, I I'm not sure where American. Isn't there in custody things? Isn't there? Isn't there certain aspects that do need to be considered as far as that goes? Not saying he's right, but she couldn't move, say, clear across to California, for example, right? Without well, if she, it it varies on the on the state law, the court. Um, now I looked up American Airlines; their headquarters are in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. But I believe Fort Worth and Houston are more than 100 miles apart. Right. So, again, he wants to control whether she can move or not. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the custody arrangement. If it's, if it's Sarah has full custody and he has generous visitation – then no, she should be able to move where she needs to move for her job without right. interference from him. If it's joint custody, but they weren't going for joint custody. True. He was, you know, he was wanting custody 
And he only wanted custody from what he told people so that Farrah would have to pay him child support because he was tired of paying child support. Um, And it looks like with Missouri City, he primarily worked for the fire department. Okay. So um, after the divorce deposition, Bob began documenting Farrah's daily activities. Uh-huh. And he um, also began soliciting people at his gym looking for someone to kill Farrah. Now, so, another thing that... Envisioning mm-hmm. this in my mind, is he literally walking up to people like, sup, want to kill my ex-wife? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who would listen. Anybody who would listen. I think uh, one of the prosecutors from the retrial said they had like between 12 and 17 people at his gym. And Hmm. the majority of them thought he was just joking or angry and blowing off steam. They didn't really take him too seriously. Um, Another important fact to remember is that at some point – the trial in the divorce case and custody case was set for November 28, 1994. Right. So, um, yeah, he was soliciting multiple people. Uh, one person, you know, kind of remarked on how he's asking so many people to do this. And he said, oh, no, when, you know, when the police come to investigate, this is going to screw with their investigation because they're going to have too many leads to follow. Hey, hey, what? And it's what like, no yeah, they're going to have a lot of leads to follow, <laughs> but they're going to have a lot of what, you know, what we like to call motive. And let's be <laughs> honest here. Each time he asks somebody to kill his wife, it's a fucking crime. Like, how stupid are you? Correct. So, um, well, again, I think it's he's got this, you know, he's got this, um, this, this personality that initially is very attractive to people. Mm -hmm. He seems like a really good guy and an upstanding citizen. And I think he can con his way out of just about anything. And he's probably gotten by all of his life conning his way out of whatever trouble he manages, his dumbass manages to get himself into. Right. Frankly. Um, while, yes, he had no criminal record, um, there's got to be a reason that the Houston Police Department would say, no, we don't want you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Especially mm-hmm. during that era of the 1980s when a lot of jurisdictions were very hard up for police officers. I'm sure, especially in Houston. Yeah. So, um, and then Frada also made threats and um, articulated his own plans to kill Farah. He was going to a strip club with a guy one night and the guy said, well, you know, it's kind of a dumb idea to have a gun in this car when we're going to the strip club 
and we're going to be drinking. And Frada said, well, I keep that in case I run into Farah, because if I run into her, I'm going to shoot her, and I'm going to make it look like a carjacking. So, Damn. You know, I, and, and he's, you know, he thinks I'm going to kill her, and I'll only serve about five years in jail, and then I'll come out and have my kids. Well, you know, that's what you think, dumbass, but that ain't how it's going to work. Especially right. when, you know, she she's killed and all these people that you've talked to <laughs> come My forward goodness. and talk about how you wanted her dead, you know, more than life itself. So and once again I think, you know, he had he had the clearest financial motive in the world. The stupid uh, in addition to his anger is that he stood to uh, gain control of their college accounts, which in his mind are probably his money anyway. Um, they He stood to gain control of a personal injury settlement, which I guess Farah had put for the kids in like a trust or something of that nature. And so he'd get control of that. And then he also, Farah had a life insurance policy through American Airlines, and it was around $100,000. Luckily, Sarah was a smart woman, and apparently when she and uh, when she threw Bob out of the house, she changed the beneficiary immediately. And so... Good. Luckily, you know, she cha- I think she may have changed it to the kids through a guardian or through her parents. But um, we'll get to that a little bit later. Okay. So November 9th, 1994, uh, probably normal day at work for Farah. At around 4.30, uh, Howard Guidry, the trigger man, was sitting out front of the apartment where Price Stash was living, waiting for him. Price Stash returned to the apartment, and then he and Gidry left. Uh, they went to a grocery store near Ferris' home where they checked to make sure that the cell phone they were using and the grocery pay phone would be able to communicate with each other because they had to be able to communicate with each other. Once they confirmed that the payphone could receive calls, uh, Price Dash dropped Gidry at Farah's house. Uh, Frada that evening had taken the three children to church. Bradley had a catechism class. Um, Daniel and Amber were going to, I guess, kind of like the uh, aftercare or, or like a daycare type situation because there was a parents' meeting at the church. Um, and a lot of people said that, you know, Frada was, it was very unusual that Frada would stick around even for the parents' meeting. Because I guess usually while the kids were at the church, he was off, you know, up to no good. Right. Uh, but this particular night, he stays at the church. Uh, Farah mm-hmm. had gone to a salon to have, a hair, have her hair cut. Um, while Gidry's 
waiting at the house. He's hiding in a backyard playhouse. At one point, he calls Prystash, and he's like, she's not here. You know, what do we do? And Prystash instructs him to keep waiting. Um, around 7.30, Frada begins getting pages and calls. And he goes to the church office to return the phone calls and uses the church landline. Uh, he also gives the church number to page of the people, Prystash and Gidry, or Prystash. Um, the church secretary at one point, the phone rings, and Frada grabs it and answers it, hello. And the church secretary is like, excuse me, you need to answer with the name of the church. And he just ignores her. And then gets done with the call, hangs it up, it rings again. He picks it up and answers it, hello again. Um, so he's he's establishing his alibi pretty solidly. However, he's also doing things that is making him are going to look suspicious. Yeah. In hindsight. Um oh, around seven forty five ish, Sarah leaves the salon. She's expecting Frada to bring the kids back to the house. So she leaves the salon without having her hair blown or dried. She leaves with wet hair to get home so she's not late, you know, to, to pick up the kids. Because by this time, it's almost 8 o'clock in the evening. Frada had taken them to dinner at a, a cafeteria, So, which phone records. Um, so... But it was going to be 8 o'clock at night, and it was a Wednesday night, so they had school the next day. And, you know, she wanted to be sure that she was home so that there wouldn't be any delays in the handoff. Um, she arrives at home, and as was her custom, she backed her car in the driveway. When Gidry heard the car backing in, he tried to enter the garage through a side door, which was locked. And so he waited until he heard the garage door going up. And then he entered through the open garage door, shooting Farah once as she got out of the car. Um, there were neighbors across the street who heard the shot, heard Farah scream, and looked out their picture window right into the garage at the Frada home and saw Farah falling to the ground. Uh, they then called 911, and while on the phone with 911, began describing everything they saw. Um, Farah was shot a second time, and then Gidry went back to the backyard. He called Prystash, and then after waiting a few minutes, he came over the fence. He hid behind bushes and waited, and then came out of the bushes to get into a small silver hatchback car with a headlight out. And again, the neighbors are on the phone describing these things as they're seeing them. Um, Gidry gets in the vehicle. Price Dash drives away. They return to their apartments. 
Uh, Gidry was a neighbor, so he lived in a, a nearby apartment. Um, Prystash goes into the apartment. He empties the gun. He hides the gun, and then he throws the bullets in the trash. His girlfriend, who he lived with at the in the apartment, is a woman by the name of Mary Gipp, and we'll talk about her a little bit more later. Uh, right. He tells her that uh, they have killed Farah. Totally smart decisions he's making here. Just saying. Yes, he's he's about as dumb as uh, he's about as dumb as uh, Frada. And then he leaves to go to the gym to collect payment from Frada. Frada had promised a thousand dollars up front, and then two thousand dollars when he got control of these accounts and got this money. Um, or the life insurance money. Um, he also had promised Price Stash a Jeep that he owned. Well, Price Stash goes to the gym, but Frada ain't there. Frada is leaving the church, and several minutes after Farah had been taken away by ambulance to be sent by life flight to Harmon Hospital in Houston, uh, Frada arrives at the crime scene with his three children in the car. Wow. Um, this, wow. This dude is, uh, that wow. is another cold. Well, I mean, you know, again, the children are only useful tools. I mean, he may think he was a great father and he may have appeared to be a great father, but, you know, the kids were only tools. They were a means to an end. Right. Um, and so, you know, he's he's not worried. I mean, I would have, like, maybe taken him to their grandparents' house. And so, look, I heard something happened at our house. You know, watch them while I go see what's going on. That would have been the innocent, concerned parent reaction. Not to drive to the crime scene with your three young children in the car. Who were seven, six, and four. Um, at some point, he also Frada calls the hospital, and he speaks to an X-ray tech. And basically, he's he's very cold and very matter of fact. And he's saying, "Well, I'm wondering is is she still alive? Should I bring my kids to tell her goodbye?" When he's questioned by the police, he complains about being hungry. What the fuck? And he's like, when are you going to wrap this up? Mm. Um, Mm. And then he left the kids with a neighbor when the police asked him, the Houston Sheriff's Department asked him to go, or Harris County Sheriff's Office asked him to go to their headquarters to be questioned, where he remained for 14 hours. And then he was released the next day. And one of the pictures I have on the the show page is a a screen cap from his interview with the media when he came out of being interviewed. And it's just like, you know, smiling for the cameras and, yeah, I hope they catch him real soon. And just icky. He's an icky, icky man. It's, I don't, 
Hmm. <laughs> He's more than icky. He's fucking stupid. <laughs> like, there's no fire. Oh, my goodness. That, too. So, um, now let's talk a little bit about Mary Gipp. Okay. Um, she is actually, aside from Robert Frada, she is a person who could have prevented everything from happening. Either in advance by warning Farah, so perhaps Farah would leave the house, especially after the June incident, would leave the house and move with the kids to her parents' house. And Sarah could start varying her activities and varying her timings. Um, you know, to be more more take more precautions. But she didn't. She knew it was she knew it was happening. She knew Price Tash was talking to uh Frada and Frada and Price Tash were planning Farah's murder, but she didn't want to get her boyfriend in trouble, I guess, because she didn't want to lose him. Although he was a career criminal, sweetie, he wasn't a prize. He's living with you. He don't have a job. You're giving him a cell phone. You know, you're paying all the bills. He ain't worth shit. Right. He's not worth hanging on to. <laughs> Put his ass in jail. Um, so she could have stopped it. And then when Price Dash, because when Gidry was waiting for Price Dash outside that apartment, the first person he encountered was Mary Gibb. And when Price Dash and Gidry left that apartment, Mary Gibb knew exactly what was going on and what was going to happen. She knew it was going to happen that day. She could have picked up the phone, called 911, given a description of the car, and sent them to wait for Price Dash and Gidry at Ferris House. Right. And if Price Dash and Gidry were dumb enough to still try to go through the plan with a sheriff's car sitting in front of the house, then they deserved whatever they got. But again, she didn't do it. And Worst of all, do you think she didn't do it because she didn't take it seriously? No, no. And this is when, when Price Dash comes home that night and says, "Yeah, we killed her." She didn't call police then. She didn't talk to police until they came to her because Price Dash was using her cell phone. One of the things that happened after Farrah was murdered is that people started calling the sheriff's department. Um, people called, the, the secretary from the church called and said, get the church phone records. He was using, Bob Frada was using our phone. And they get his pager records. And they come up with a cell phone number that belongs to Mary Gipp. On the phone records from the church and the phone records from his pager. So they have the connection to Mary Gibb. They go to Mary Gibb, and she says, I don't know nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. And in the meantime, they're also following Frada. 
So they know fraud is gym and they get, you know, they talk to people at the gym and they start learning about all the people that Frada was soliciting. And Frada at one point even told one of the guys um, is when he told him, yeah, I'm, I'm creating so many leads for the detectives to follow. They're going to screw this up. You know, they're not going to know what to do, um, which was the dumbest thing anybody could ever say in the history of dumb stuff. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. And then Mary get once the police talk to her, uh, she becomes a little concerned, but only about her own ass. And so she asked Prystash about the gun, and Prystash told her that he had given it to Howard Guidry. So then she wasn't concerned because the gun was no longer in her apartment and couldn't get her ass in trouble. So not a lot of um not a lot of really good evidence was found over the next several months. Uh in December of ninety four, Ferris father Lex Bacher received a call from a police officer, former police chief, or someone uh, attached to law enforcement who offered to kill Bob Frada for him. Uh, Mr. Bacher, and this shows you the character of Farah and her family, he doesn't say, hell yeah, let's do this. He contacts police and then wears a wire when he's talking to this person. And the person, uh, the guy's name was William Planner, ends up facing his own solicitation charges, uh, which were subsequently, while he was convicted, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals ended up vacating his conviction. Uh, But we will touch on that one next week. I'll talk a little bit about Planter next week. Uh, But again, you know, Lex Bacher, you know, in spite of how he feels about Bob Frada and knowing Bob Frada killed his daughter, he's still not going to go there. And that proves that I sent you that free frame Frada crap, uh, the link to that crap. (laughs) That proves that all the allegations Frada's making about Lex Bacher are Mm -hmm. totally bull. Shit. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Yeah. Which apparently is not the kind of the kind that Frada likes to eat. Uh <laughs> um that was wrong, wrong on so many levels, but whatever. Well, in March March first of nineteen ninety five, Harris County officials get something of a break, although I don't think that they actually realized it at the time. Uh, Howard Guidry was arrested after robbing a bank in Houston. He was fleeing. He had a backpack. He apparently dropped the backpack. He was apprehended, and then the backpack was recovered, and inside was a thirty-eight Charter Arms 
Bulldog Revolver. And the serial number on that revolver linked it to, take a guess, Bob Frada, who purchased the gun in 1982, according to alcohol, tobacco, and firearm records. Yeah, I... I... This whole thing right there is just, it's mind-blowing to say the least. Yeah. So, um, then there was a grand jury convened, and Mary Gipp was subpoenaed to appear, and that's when police said, you can be with us or you can be against us. Mm-hmm. And Mary Gipp started to think that she kind of said, oh, are you going to charge me with something? And she was told, we very well could. So she worked out an immunity deal mm-hmm. and then agreed to testify before the grand jury. And it was at that point that she provided police with the note that she wrote on the night Farrah was murdered with the information and serial number of the gun that Price Dash had identified to her as the one having been used in the murder. Um, She had disposed, she'd retrieved the bullets out of the trash can behind Price Dash. But then she eventually disposed of those in a, a, you know, mall trash can. So they had her for accessory before the fact and tampering with evidence. So she, like I said, made a deal and agreed to testify before the grand jury. Uh, It was at that point that they realized that they'd recovered the gun. Uh, They did do ballistics testing, and while the gun could be, was found to be consistent with one spent shell casing found in the garage, the shell casings or, or the fragments recovered from other parts in the garage and from Farrah's body, they mm-hmm. did not have sufficient characteristics to link them to the gun. Although they could say that all of the all of those uh, all of those fragments were fired from a thirty-eight with the same from the same manufacturer, mm-hmm. basically. So. Um, Gidry and Price Dash, upon being arrested, uh, they both made inculpatory statements. Gidry even went with police and did a walkthrough at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been in jail on the bank robbery charge. So he was indicted and charged. Price Dash was indicted and charged and arrested. And uh, they both confessed, but later recanted their confessions. Hmm. So, uh, and, and wouldn't testify. Now, this is my speculation and my speculation only, but I believe that when Frada was finally arrested in April of 1995, that 
they were in jail together, and he was able to tell them, oh, they don't have anything. They haven't, they've got nothing. Y'all say your confessions were coerced. The cops beat you, and we're all going to walk away from this. We just have to all keep our mouths shut. Mm-hmm. Because several of the people he solicited, that was his advice to them immediately after Farrah's murder. If everybody keeps their mouth shut, nobody can get charged with anything, <laughs> which isn't really true. Yeah. But, you know. That's kind of um, like if you're a cop, you're a, a, you're a cop. Right. And another thing, prior to his arrest, uh, another another thing with the with the custody of the kids, um, Lex and Betty Bacher immediately filed for custody of the kids right at, right after Farrah was murdered. And so they were granted temporary custody because the allegations made during the divorce custody trial, the fact that she was killed three weeks before the custody, divorce and custody trial was set to happen and some of his uh, evaluations in the custody proceedings plus the cloud hanging over his head uh, of his suspected involvement, uh, they felt that the court believed Bockers would be better for the kids than being with their dad. So they were able to obtain custody right away. Uh, there were some fights because Frada was basically ordered to continue paying child support, and after he was suspended and then fired from Missouri City Waller County law enforcement, um, he didn't want to pay child support. And his attitude was probably the Bockers are rich, they have money, they don't need me to pay child support. They're your damn kids. You have an obligation to support them, regardless of the financial condition of their mother when she was alive or her parents when they gain custody because you're a dumbass. That's just frustrating. Yeah, it is. It is a little frustrating. So why don't we do this? Let's take a quick break. um, And then we'll, we'll talk about uh, Frada's first trial and subsequent proceedings. Okay. Sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back after this. And every Tuesday night, join Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien live here on Talk Radio 49 for the Clear and Convincing Show. At 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on Tuesday nights, Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien look at the most infamous cases in this country's history. Not from the court of public opinion, but from the eyes of the court. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Clear and Convincing Show live only on Talk Radio 49 and blogtalkradio.com. Thank you. 
After a little while in hibernation, it's back the American Idiot Show, only on Talk Radio 49. Join Sean Castleberry, Michael Carnahan, and Brad Hicks as they dig through all the headlines in today's popular culture, and they decide who's an idiot and who gets a pass. It's the American Idiot Show, each and every Monday night, live only on Talk Radio 49. Michael Carnahan here with Talk Radio 49 to let you know that it has never been easier to catch your favorite podcast on the go. Of course, you can listen to us right here on blogtalkradio.com, but if you have don't have the time to listen live, go ahead and check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts by searching Talk Radio 490. Also, on YouTube, Clear and Convincing Podcast. Search it out, and you can go ahead and check us out there. Or if you're a fan of the American Idiots, just be patient with us. We will get a YouTube up shortly, and you'll be able to enjoy all of your favorite Talk Radio 49 podcasts on the go. Now let's get you back to the show. I know you got that. that We finally got YouTube in there. Yes, I like that very much. I'm very proud of you. Yes, absolutely. I know we got a comment on on the YouTube page uh, this week. Uh, I definitely want to let everybody know we are working to get them. Trust me. It takes me about an hour and a half. It takes me 30 minutes to get the video rendered and about another hour and a half to get it up on YouTube. So... Bear with me. Right. Working through it. That's fine. You're doing a great job so far. All right. So back to Bob Frada. Um, he was the first person tried. Uh, his trial was 1996. And the 
linchpin of the state's case was hearsay from Guidry and Prystash confessing to their part in the murders, uh, describing how the murder happened, and all of that was brought in through one of the investigators as well as Mary Gibb. Now, before we go any further, that was 1996, and it was admitted under hearsay exceptions of admission against interest. And by controlling at that time Supreme Court precedent, mm-hmm. um, while Frada's trial attorney, one of them claims he had no idea this was going to happen. Um, unfortunately, the records from Harris County are not online for 1996, but I have no doubt whatsoever that the first thing he did was try to keep those statements out, which means the prosecutor had to show why they were being brought in and, you know, what theory they were being brought in under. And the judge had to determine whether they were or were not admissible, and he found them to be admissible. Um, So I don't believe that they had no idea that that was going to happen. I think that they're just, you know, conveniently (laughs) uh, forgetting that they probably, more likely than not, tried to keep them out to begin with. Uh, but that's something I, I there's criticism of Kelly Siegler for doing it as well. However, again, that she believed that they were admissible through hearsay exceptions. Uh, she believed that they were admissible statements against interest. Why would you confess to something you didn't do in 1996? And some of the statements to Mary Gipp aren't, you know, they're not, that's not, she's not a police officer. She wasn't working for the police. In fact, at that time, she was working against them. So, um, again, the law at the time, the judge believed them to be admissible and admitted them. Uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals also believed them to be admissible and affirmed Frada's conviction and sentence on direct appeal. And then the state post-conviction, the trial court and the Court of Criminal Appeals denied relief, uh, and one of the issues challenged was the admission of those statements. And again, the Texas courts believed that they were admissible. Now, when Frada went to United States District Court on federal habeas relief, the judge uh, in that case decided that the Texas courts were wrong and had unreasonably applied Supreme Court law and precedent, and that the admission of the statements, some of the statements, not all of them, was improper. So Frada was granted habeas relief on only that issue, and he was ordered to be retried. 
the state appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which affirmed, and it doesn't appear that anybody sought a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, and Frada did seek a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court after his direct appeal, and the U.S. Supreme Court did not accept his writ. Right. So even even that did not raise the uh, you know raise the suspicion of the U.S. Supreme Court after his direct appeal. So uh, now, in the intervening years, a case called Crawford versus Washington was decided, and that's where some of the the testimonial hearsay uh, standards were reworked by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was the basis on which. Uh, Frada argued that the statements were inadmissible. So he went back to Harris County Jail and was being held in the Harris County Jail while the once the Fifth Circuit denied, affirmed the habeas relief granted by the district court. Apparently, while he was in the Harris County Jail, he began using one of his attorneys to obtain contraband, uh, a.k.a. nudie pictures, from various girlfriends. Apparently, the system they worked out was that the girlfriends would send emails of, quote, evidence, unquote, that might be helpful to Frada in his upcoming trial – and the attorney would, her secretary rather, would print this information out, bring it to the courthouse in an envelope marked attorney-client privilege, work product, and leave it on the defense table. And then the attorney would try to review the information with Frada uh, prior to trial, after trial, during lunch break. If they didn't have time to review it, however, Frada would just take that envelope back to the jail. And because it's work attorney-client privilege, work product, they can't look at it when he goes back to the jail. They can't touch it when he goes back to the jail. And so if among the, quote, evidence are risque pictures, nobody's going to know. Fraud is beating the system. And that's, again, this is my speculation, but that's what I think this this was. He was beating the system. Right. And also, at this point, uh, I believe he did have a habit of pro se filings in his, after his initial conviction, but he also began making pro se filings in leading up to his trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've looked at some of them and it's the world according to Bob Frada, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've read the free, the 
free fraud of BS. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of what it is. It's, if he's, and it, it is kind of, he's got the attitude. If I say it, it's true. Even if it's hmm. not. <laughs> so, oh, right. Um, but in Texas, they don't allow, if you're represented by counsel, you are not allowed to file pro se filings. Mm-hmm. If you want to be represented by counsel, you, everything has to come through your counsel. If you want to go pro se, then you have counsel to advise you, but you have to go all or nothing. You know, basically. Um, so in 2009, he had his retrial. Uh, the prosecution case really they didn't lose as much as they maybe initially believed. Um, They still had all the phone records documenting phone calls and timeline. And so they could very accurately price dash and Frada in contact with each other, price dash and Gidry in touch with each other and in, you know, contact with each other. So, they didn't really lose that much. Um, they also had the multiple solicitation witnesses. They had the gun and the fact that it was bought by Bob Frada in 1982. Right. Um, they had the original ballistics. Uh, then they also had Mary Gibbs' testimony, although hers was limited to only certain statements made to her by Price Dash. Okay. Um, the defense was the Saudi defense. Some other dude did it. Of and uh, without the full transcripts, I'm not sure exactly what that entailed, although I think that they tried to say Price Dash was uh, decided to kill Farah and then blackmail Bob. Mhm. Unfortunately, that doesn't really track or make any damn sense because Frada was soliciting a lot of people. Right. <laughs> so, you know, all those people that he solicited and while some did believe he was joking or blowing off steam, there were others who realized he was serious. You know, they had the one who said that Frada came to him and said tell the cops you went over there to scare her and you shot her by accident. So he's getting trying to get one of the guys that he tried to solicit to give a false statement to police. Right. And again, he thinks he's going to get custody of the kids and control of all this money, so he's offering to pay people to do these things. So... Um, and then I think they also tried to uh, claim that William Planter is the one who actually killed Farah and then was trying to extort Lex Bacher. But, you know, again, it doesn't make any sense. And I know in an interview that uh, one of his attorneys gave in uh, the Warner Herzog's On Death Row, she conflated Price Dash and Planter because she claimed Price Dash was a former police officer. 
and right. he was a career criminal. <laughs> no way he was a former <laughs> cop. And right. nothing I could find in anything that I read uh, corroborated that he was once a cop. If he was once a cop, right. it I was agree. not for long, and it was because of his criminal behavior that he was no longer a cop. Yeah, I can um, imagine. He was originally from Illinois. He did time in prison in Florida. He wasn't even from Texas. So yeah. um, the jury, uh, the verdict in the 2009 case took a little bit longer because um, they did lose some substantial evidence. You know, the statements Confessions of Gip, of Gidry and, and Prystash did make it an easier job for the first jury. But after about two days of deliberation, uh, Friday's jury came back and convicted him of capital murder. Um, then the sentencing began, and after the sentencing, the prosecutor's office sought permission and received permission to get tapes of Frada's jailhouse phone calls. And that was likely done in anticipation of whatever mitigation evidence the defense was going to put on during the sentencing phase. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are in jail, being tried or awaiting trial, you still do not have the privacy rights that you have in the free world. You do not have privacy rights in your cell. They can come into your cell while you're in court, and they can turn it upside down if they want to. They don't have to have probable cause. They don't have to have reasonable belief. They can do it. And if they find something that hurts you, it's admissible. Um, If you have a problem with that, then don't get arrested. Don't go to jail. And if you do get arrested and go to jail, be careful what you do and say and keep in your cell. True. (laughs) It's a pretty pretty easy fix. So they started taping his phone calls and providing the prosecutor's office with copies of the phone calls. And in one of those phone calls, not – probably even before he was convicted – Frada referred to pictures sent to him through his attorney by a woman by the name of Betty Gomez. And he talked about how great the pictures were and how good she looked and how he apparently um, used them as inspiration for a private activity. Got you. Um, the, the, you you're picking you, you're picking up where I'm going. Hopefully, hopefully there aren't too many people out there scratching their heads, going, "What the hell is she talking about?" I wonder um, if he got uh, yeah. And apparently, well, I don't know whether he had a celly or not. Um, I, I of course, yeah, maybe he had a celly. And the celly was hitting him in the stomach while he's looking at the pictures, uh, spanking the monkey. 
Uh, and apparently he found them quite inspirational because he uh, didn't just spank the monkey once. He spanked the monkey repeatedly. <laughs> so um, the prosecution prior to the sentencing phase beginning, contacted the defense attorneys and let them know that they had some uh, recordings of phone calls that they were going to use. And, the uh, you know, in response to the phone call, Frada's cell was searched and the pictures were uh, confiscated and they were deemed to be contraband uh, because you can't have duty pictures and... You know, you can't have a Playboy magazine when you're in jail. You can't have pictures of nude women when you're in jail. You can't have pictures of nude women's body parts when you're in jail. Yeah, that That's would be a no-no. Strictly That's why promoting. they would be before it gets to you. You know, um, so that was uh, – <clears throat> so that was – that presented a problem. Uh, unfortunately – while the judge believed, and I think the prosecutors believed, that the attorney was an unwitting conduit, uh, it caused quite a stir. And, of course, the um, defense tried to get a mistrial. Uh, that was not successful. They did, however, get a couple of delays that would enable the defense attorneys to, you know, prepare their closing arguments. Right. Um, I, you know, I feel bad for the, I feel bad for the uh, defense attorney because she did worry about potential criminal liability. She did worry about an ethical violation. I think her secretary, although, you know, when people send my boss emails and I print them out for him and there are documents attached, I'm usually kind of looking at the documents. And so if something improper, you know, I don't know whether she was printing things in the emails without even looking at them, which if you're a criminal defense attorney, you got to know that your clients are going to try to get over. And so maybe you should be guarding against that happening by right. reviewing things. And if there's something that should not be going into the jail, then you don't print it out. Yeah, maybe paying extra close attention to that. You know, I don't know. I don't know. And because of the potential for criminal liability, uh, it was decided that the secretary not testify at any of the sentencing hearings that were held to put this, you know, kind of develop the facts of the situation on the record. Um, then they finally, they concluded the sentencing phase. Um, Frada's Children testified. Uh, Farah's parents testified. Uh, parents testified. And I mean, you know, this has been a, a tough thing. By the time 
their dad was retried, they were all adults. But they had been without their mom since six, seven, and four. And they'd gone through the custody dispute between the grandparents and their father. So, um, you know, it hasn't been an easy life for Bradley, Daniel, or Amber. Um, But the jury came back and sentenced Prada to death. Right. So that was the end of his 2009 retrial. Um, He filed a direct appeal, and again, during the direct appeal, he made several pro se filings, all of which were rejected by the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals as improper. His conviction and sentence were affirmed. Uh, He raised 32 issues, I think, on direct appeal. And, you know, they basically found that none of them had merit. Then he went to state post-conviction and, again, tried pro se filings, The World According to Bob, um, which were also not accepted by the trial court, although he did, at one point during state post-conviction, he did discharge his attorney and was granted permission to act pro se. However, he believed that if he was acting pro se, that the court would have to give him everything he needed to turn his cell into a law office. Really? And so he wanted a fax machine, he wanted a telephone line, he wanted a computer. And you're on death row, that ain't going to happen. You can act pro se and use what the prison provides. Um, and so he ended up getting new counsel to represent him. Uh, But even after new counsel took over, he continued wanting to make pro se filings. And basically, he wanted to make pro se filings to raise issues that his attorneys did not feel were meritorious. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of pro se defendants. He would basically get told no, and they would turn around and and just ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, he he would he would just ignore it, and he would he would go ahead and and um, and just continue doing it. And he did it multiple times when he went to federal court as well. Um, by the time he went to federal court, he had actually he was being represented by James Ridding, who represented Larry Swearingen. Small world. Mm-hmm. But he didn't think, you know, again, he didn't think that that uh, Ridding wasn't raising all the issues he wanted to raise. And like I said, a lot of them are like the things about him saying Lex Bacher stole $150,000 from him. You know, that have, that has nothing to do with his guilt or innocence. Um, he raised issues 
that had no basis in the record that were actually contradicted by the record. So, you know, hmm. he was he, he was uh, he's got too much time on his hands. Unfortunately, at one point, uh, death row prisoners could work, and he did work in, I think, the prison garment factory. But at some point, I guess mm-hmm. after the Texas Seven escaped, the the Texas Department of Corrections decided that um, death row prisoners can't work anymore, and so they took that privilege away from death row prisoners. Um, I don't know exactly when that when that change occurred, but it occurred. So he went to U.S. District Court, um, which basically mirrored state court. He filed a lot of pro se filings, and there are multiple orders on the federal uh, court website that basically the judge is saying, you know, I've told Mr. Frada he can't do this. If he's going to be represented by attorneys, then... He's represented by those attorneys. If he's going to represent himself pro se, then he's not entitled to have those attorneys represent him. And he's really doing himself more harm than good. Right, honestly. As is more, so, most people who defend themselves, except at least we got right. a few laughs at, uh, what's his name, uh, at a, uh, <laughs> Bundy. Or not Bundy. Was it Bundy? Bundy yeah, was Bundy. one, yeah, but Bundy was Bundy represented himself at trial, but did not represent himself on appeal or or post conviction. Gotcha. So that, okay. there's a bit of a difference. There's a bit of a difference. Um, and so the U.S. District Court dismissed his. Uh, federal habeas claims found all but three to have been unexhausted, meaning they were never presented to the state court and he couldn't go back and present them in a successive writ because he didn't have any reason for not presenting them in the first writ because they were available at the time of the first writ. So he wouldn't be able to present them in state court and therefore he couldn't get relief in federal court. And the Fifth Circuit, in a very short opinion, affirmed the the U.S. District Court. So uh, his federal habeas claims were dismissed, denied and dismissed. Right. Okay. Frada did file a pro se writ to the U.S. Supreme Court. And... Um, that basically uh, – one of the things he's claiming is actual innocence. However, um, you know, really there is no actual innocence. He's, what he thinks proves actual innocence is um, not, not even close. And most of it, again, is information that could have been presented at his – trial in 2009 
Um, he's also on the internet uh, seeking help, which you you read part of that on that free frame yeah. site. I read that, or I skimmed that, and I was like, oh, my dear Lord. Yeah. Uh, and that's not unusual. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of these inmates, some states are even letting inmates have, like, if you can buy an iPad, you can have an iPad. Mm. So you can have access to social media, et cetera. Um, right. He probably Tex, Texas is not one of those states, um, but uh, he has. You know, I'm sure he has somebody on the outside who is uh, taking all his BS and probably believes them, and sure. is uh, is posting it and you know he wants people to send him money yeah they pay and um i can't i can't afford my own uh i can't afford my own uh attorney even though i don't want an and, attorney apparently yeah and and he's been sabotaged by all the court appointed attorneys that's you know that's the one that's uh that's the funniest. So they don't. They didn't sabotage you, Bobby. <laughs> they just know you're full of crap. <laughs> or what you right. want to, you know, what you want to raise is not going to help you. Yeah. So, um, and that writ was denied, or was refused. No, denied. Uh, earlier this year, or early 2019. Let me see. I'm trying to... Yeah. So the U.S. Supreme Court and um, Sonia Sotomayor did not write a memorandum uh, saying that uh, Bobby Frada may very well be innocent. Mm -hmm. Which surprises me. So, um, but uh, that is that is Bobby Frost's case in a nutshell. And then next week we'll talk a little bit about Planter um, and the whole the whole thing with Lex Bacher, uh, as well as his eventual basically acquittal. Uh, and then we'll talk about the cases against Joseph Price Dash and Howard Guidry. Okay. And their journeys through the judicial system. Um, okay. Howard Howard Guidry was able to get his conviction uh, vacated, and he was also granted a new trial. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay. Thank you. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that is 
Bobby Frada. And and that's yeah. Yo. Yeah, he's special. He is a special kind of stupid. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Absolutely. If you have a chance, uh, there's a 48 hours called Thou Shalt Not Kill. Okay. Um, on YouTube. And then mm-hmm. uh, Werner Herzog's On Death Row. Okay. Send them to me. Uh, send them to me on Facebook and we'll, uh, okay. I'll check them out. Send this you weekend. the links. And you can look at them. And, you know, I think, I think Prystash and Gidry have been a little bit smarter. Because they really have kept their mouth shut. Right. But, um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, I'll, uh, I'll send you those links. Okay. Sweet. So, anyway, well, that is, a, that is it. I guess we're going to wrap her up a little early. Is there anything... You want to talk about since we got a little time? Um, nothing I can think of, but it sounds like you got some music playing somewhere, or I do. Well, I was looking at, I was going to look at the comment on the YouTube page. Oh, yeah. By the way, did, uh, I just sent you a uh, invite earlier. Go ahead and accept that for me when you get a chance. Okay. Is it um, well, on email or? It should have been sent to your email. The same email you send me the outlines from. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so. What, oh, and by the way, we... I. <clears throat> I I got an email from uh, Michael Amo today. Oh, Apparently, yeah. Thoroughfan is doing some sort of uh, a survey. Mm-hmm. And okay, so I I accepted, and it's managed permissions just done. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Okay, I just um, wanted to make sure. Anyway, you were on here. yeah. So he's going to send me a link to the survey, and I'm going to put it on social media. I'll put mm-hmm. it on Claire and Convincing page and a couple other places, and I'll send it to you so that we can fill it out. Okay. So okay, it's it's to um it's really kind of to ex- to assess the interest in um let's see a survey of fans on the horse partnership concept to just I guess determine you know how many people would be interested in the horse partnership concept whatever that might be. So, but, uh, and I, you know, I told him I didn't have a, I don't really have a lot of contacts on my clear and convincing account, mm-hmm. but I'll put it out on social media when I get it. Yeah, totally. And we'll if I don't, if I don't get the link in a couple of days, I'll, I'll ask him about okay. it. So, we'll definitely keep your um, eyes out and, that, yeah, I'll keep my eyes out for it. And apparently the Preakness Stakes which was supposed to be this weekend is um, going to run. The NBC is going to run the 2015 American Pharaoh Preakness stake and hopefully run 
the uh, Triple Crown Showdown Preakness Stakes with the 13 Triple Crown winners. And I just have to say to anybody out there who listened um, to our episode with Brian Langlois, I was right. The fastest time in the Kentucky Derby is the horse who won, Secretariat. Okay. Okay, look at you, Lisa. So that was just a hunch on my part at that time, but the way the you know, the way the race played out with whatever analytics they used, Secretariat ended up winning. Okay. And American Pharaoh ended up being robbed. Because okay. Whirl Away bumped him mm-hmm. in the final couple of furlongs. Hmm. And so he ended up finishing, I think, fourth. Oh. It was American Pharaoh. I mean, it was Secretariat, I believe, Citation, and then Seattle Slew. Okay. So, okay. Uh, but it was it was an interesting fun, you know, different thing. And I really enjoyed it, and I'm hoping that NBC is going to do it again this weekend with uh, with a Triple Crown Showdown Preakness. That would be cool as hell. Yeah. So, um, I'll find a... I think I saved a link to it. I'll send you a link to the race. So that you can see it. It really was. It was. It was. It was a great, a great concept. Um, and the the best part is is that Eddie Arcaro rode both Whirl Away and Citation, but they were able to essentially clone him. He wasn't left with making a choice of which horse to ride. Uh, they just had Eddie Arcaro on both horses. Oh, sweet. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'll send you a link to the, the Triple Crown Showdown Kentucky Derby. Okay. Hell yeah. So, I can't wait to see that. That'd be cool. <clears throat> yeah. So, all right. Well, your Google invite has been accepted. Okay. Awesome. And Don't forget, guys, check out the page on uh, YouTube. Like and subscribe. It's Clear and Convincing uh, Podcast. And uh, go ahead and give us a subscribe. Like the videos if you enjoy them. Uh, if there's some episodes on there you haven't heard yet, definitely. Our, our, our entire archive should be up there within the next three to six months. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing pretty well. And you are um, you are putting the current episodes up, right? So this one should as be they, up as they happen. The next week. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and I appreciate that because that keeps us at least uh, current as to what we're doing now. Yes, ma'am. All righty. Well, I guess that's going to be it for tonight then. Sounds good. Well, let's wrap her up and put a bow on her. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook 
go to our blog at clearingconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, May 19th, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 13, State of Texas versus Joseph Andrew Prystash and Howard Paul Guidry. We'll talk more about the conspiracy to murder Farrah Bakker Frada, the evidence against Prystash and Guidry, their trials, appeals, and post-conviction claims. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.